Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Good morning and welcome to the Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill this morning. The fallout continues from Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, and all the president's henchmen. We have heard from one of the jurors in the Manafort trial. There is more talk of what the implications are of Michael Cohen's guilty plea directly implicating the president in a federal crime. We'll have all of that and a lot more soon. But I'm here in the studio with our lovely team, and that includes Peter Ogburn. Good morning, Peter. Hello, Sabrina. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? Good. It's been a while since we I saw just, you. We were discussing the last couple times that you've been here. I was gone. You absconded. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, well, I won't say I, I didn't show up because you were here. But I wasn't here when you were here. I yes. would never say that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I feel like a lot has happened since we last saw each other. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Times have changed a lot. Time. Times have changed since I saw anybody yesterday. Like yeah. everything everything just changes constantly. But yes, so many things have changed. Times have changed, but also in some ways they haven't. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. We've got obviously Ray Rogers uh, and Supreme Bolding here as well. And uh, we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to have some great guests uh, over the next two hours so obviously stay with us but first this is the full court press yes indeed just a couple of other stories making news sabrina you hungry i am now okay oh good good well i have a great deal for you if you're hungry and you want to eat a lot of terrible pasta Mm. olive garden yesterday announced Uh. that they are offering its first annual pasta pass here's how it works you pay three hundred dollars three hundred dollars and you can have unlimited servings of Olive Garden pasta for the entire year. It is only available to the first 1,000 customers. Again, if you pay $300, it's a year's worth 
of unlimited pasta. pasta. Of bad pasta. Of unlimited bad pasta. Of unlimited bad pasta. I can think of nothing worse. Doesn't that sound great? I feel like a bunch of MAGA people are going to be lining up at the door. And probably. <laughs> Have you ever been to an Olive Garden? Uh, when I before when I was much younger, and then we moved to Italy when I was 11, and we never went back to Olive Garden. Yeah, I would say that would probably break you of an Olive Garden habit yeah. living in living in Italy. Yeah. Anyway, but now the, that you say unlimited pasta, you know, yeah. it might not be good, but there's a lot of it. They also are putting on sale 23,000 passes that offer eight weeks of unlimited pasta, and that's only a hundred dollars. So you it couldn't be, pay me to literally to eat literally unlimited pasta. Pay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the sale goes on uh, it goes live today at pastapass.com, uh, 2 p.m. today, uh, Thursday. So go get your unlimited pasta. Do you have any idea who the most or the best paid actor in the world is? Who would you guess is the most paid, the wealthiest actor in the world? Well, it's no longer Kevin Spacey. It's not Kevin Spacey. No, it is not Kevin Spacey. Who do you think it would be? George Clooney. George Clooney is the correct answer, Sabrina. That's an excellent, excellent guess. Here's the thing, though. It's not necessarily because of his acting. He uh, put out a tequila brand a couple of years ago, and he sold the brand, which means between June of 2007 and June of 2018, George Clooney earned an estimated $239 million. That is that nuts. Is the I was unaware of the George Clooney brand of tequila. Avion. Okay. Yes, yes, you could go and buy that. It's not his anymore. He sold it. He, he sold and his it. partner sold it. But they brought in, or he brought in $239 million in one year. That is the highest earnings of his entire career in film, which spanned about 35 years. So he is the highest paid actor, but not necessarily for or the acting. The acting. Not it's a for bad the actor, other though. Stuff. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But it's, and and uh, I haven't had his tequila. The Clooney tequila? Yet. Uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yet. Maybe I will have it. Who knows? <laughs> gone are the days when we would have had someone bring it on the show. Yeah, no, that's the, those days are gone. <laughs> I'm, I'm sad to say. I'm sad to say. But you know, you can still buy it, but again, it's not going to be his tequila anymore. Yeah, the good old days when we sat around having cocktails at 8.30 in Getting the morning. Getting hammered at 8.30 in the morning. Those are good times. This is the Bill Press Show. All righty. A lot of news to unpack this morning, as is the case with every morning in Trump's America. And the president's sit-down with Fox News continues in the aftermath of a jury convicting his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, on eight counts related to tax fraud, as well as the president's longtime personal attorney Michael Cohen separately pleading guilty and telling a court that he violated campaign finance law in coordination with and at the direction of a candidate for federal office who was named, of course, as Donald Trump. Uh, We have uh, the president's efforts to defend himself and uh, some of the latest uh, that we'll, we'll play for you in a moment has a lot more to do with what he did and didn't know about payments that Michael Cohen made to women who had alleged to having an affair uh, with uh, Donald Trump. This was, of course, prior to his time in uh, public office, and that includes uh, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, 
this, uh, having said that, the payment to, took place just in days, months before the November 2016 election. In fact, Cohen said quite clearly in court that the action was taken with the purpose of influencing uh, the election itself to ensuring that they did not have a very damaging story uh, released about their candidate uh, just as voters were going to head to the polls. This could have very well actually been a campaign-ending moment, if given its timing. We we don't know. There were so many, but days before the election could have been a game-changer. Uh, right now, Trump is on Fox News uh, as we speak, saying that um, impeachment is absurd because uh, how could you impeach someone who's done such a great job? Uh, Peter, he's done a really great job, of right? Course, like violating yeah. federal crime. Oh, totally. Um, no collusion. No collusion. Um, but you he's, know, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I I, I I was at home last night and I was watching a movie, uh, which is on Netflix. It's a great movie, Steven Soderbergh film, uh, uh, The Informant, mm. with Matt Damon. Yes. This is the role you might remember from a couple of years ago. Matt Damon had to put on a bunch of weight for the role. He yes. looks like a schlubby, normal guy. And the whole premise of the, I don't want to, I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but the whole premise of the movie is a guy who is who's, uh, mentally ill, but also very high ranking in his job and just constantly lies his way out of every single scenario that he gets caught in, right? Because mm. he's up to some bad stuff at work. And it just, the whole movie is basically following his lies all the way to the point where you just cannot lie anymore. Mm -hmm. That's the premise of the movie, basically. And I was just like, wow, this is just so familiar. This is so familiar because what happens when you uh, continue to build these lies and, and, and every single thing that you say is a defense of your actions and they get more and more embellished as you go along, there is an end to that road. Mm -hmm. You can't do that forever. Mm -hmm. And people will get wise and people will figure out new ways to come at you and people will figure out new ways to show that you're lying and they have to get smarter and they have to get more uh, precise. But at the end of the day, the trail will run out. You just cannot lie your way out of a problem. You cannot. And in fact, we saw evidence of that when Trump sat down with Fox News, and this was a, the first part of his interview that aired yesterday morning, and he was asked about the payments, and here's what he had to say. Did you know about the payments? Uh, later on, I knew. Later on. But you have to understand, Ainsley, what he did, and they weren't taken out of campaign finance. That's a big thing. That's a much bigger thing. Did they come out of the campaign? They didn't come out of the campaign. They came from me, and I tweeted about it. That's easy to prove, by the way. That should, like if I'm Michael Cohen and I say something completely different, I should be able to prove that. Right. So we'll see. Well, we'll see. We'll see. But the part where he said he found out later on, there is a tape, of course, that Michael Cohen's uh, attorney put out for public consumption, uh, in which Cohen is heard discussing the payment to Karen McDougal, specifically um, with respect to AMI, American Media Inc., the publisher of the National Enquirer purchasing the rights to her story. The practice is known as catch and kill. They essentially bought the exclusive rights to her story about her alleged affair with Trump. And then, of course, they tried, they killed the story and she was not basically, by, because of the terms of the agreement, allowed to go and share the story with anyone else. 
Now, <laughs> in that same tape, uh, it's not clear. Some parts are not clear in terms of what Trump is and isn't agreeing to. But in that tape, which was heard uh, just a few weeks ago, um, it, it was made clear, at least from Michael Cohen, that they were trying to do away with uh, Karen McDougal and her story and discussing whether or not to make a cash payment. Now, that was Karen McDougal. The story about Stormy Daniels uh, and the payment made to her has also changed repeatedly with Michael Cohen first having and the White House first having denied that any such payment was even ever made. Uh, White House saying they had no knowledge of it. Eventually, when uh, good reporting uh, brought forward more information, Cohen said that he paid made the payment of his own volition, that Trump had no knowledge. It was just something he did to help his longtime client. Then it turned into, well, actually, Trump uh, reimbursed him. That's yeah, what Rudy Giuliani yeah. said. Yeah. Um, so then it was it was like, okay, so Trump did know about it, and then Rudy Giuliani tried to walk it back, but it was too late. And then Michael Cohen's like, yeah, you know what? He knew. But that's my thing. That's my <laughs> point. They're just lying. And, yeah. like, you know, they can get all upset about the accusations that they're lying. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders yesterday, like, you know, got very mad at reporters and very indignant and said, well, how dare you accuse mm. us of lying? Like, they have told multiple provable lies. And, th look, there's still some gray area, right, that I think will come out with the, with the Michael Cohen stuff. And I feel very certain that he has some evidence to back up what he's saying. I mean, he's a lawyer. I mean, that's, that's how things get done. But Trump feels like he can just BS his way out of any situation. It's really that simple, honestly, because that's what he's always been able to do because he's never been president of the United States. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's pretty easy to do when you're just a powerful white guy in New York. Yeah. Like, you can, you can BS your way out of a lot of things. Yeah. But when you're president of the United States... Uh, it gets a little harder. It gets a little harder. And some of that um, sound from Sarah Sanders is painful to listen to because at some point you wonder if you're just hearing her saying the same thing over and over, or if she's actually saying the same thing. What motivates over a person like her? And over um, power. I, I mean, I guess, but don't you see the writing on the wall that this is just... And this is where you wonder uh, how uh, you might be eventually implicated, depending on the lens you're willing to go to in order to protect someone who uh, may have and allegedly has violated at least one federal crime, and we don't know what else is to come. Um, at some point, if there are multiple people implicated in trying to obstruct justice, that could include people at the White House. Sure. Um who ultimately are there on taxpayer-funded salaries and are there to uh, represent the executive branch of this country. But look, according to Sarah Sanders, he did nothing wrong. As the president has said, we've stated many times he did nothing wrong. There are no charges against him. As the president has stated on numerous occasions, he did nothing wrong. There are no charges against him in this. The president in this matter has done nothing wrong, and there are no charges against him. What the president has stated a number of times, he did nothing wrong. There are no charges against him. All he knows uh, that he did nothing wrong. What I can tell you about this is that the president did nothing wrong. There are no charges against him. There is no collusion for anything beyond that. Just because you continue to ask the same questions over and over, I'm not going to give you a different answer. The president has done nothing wrong. There are no charges against him. There is no collusion. You get the idea.
You get the idea. And what was that, like eight times she said it? In case you missed the briefing, which means hopefully you have more of a life than some of the rest of us do, uh, she did just repeat the same refrain over and over. We did not create that clip no. on a loop. Um, and I think the, that's what's so striking, although not unsurprising, that when peppered with these questions and pressed on what was obviously going to be the focus of any briefing the day after uh, both uh, the verdict against Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen's guilty plea, all that the White House can do is say, well, he did nothing wrong, but without being able to provide any evidence to absolve the president and basically just saying he hasn't been charged with a crime. Well, Here's the thing, and this is what was one of the most important pieces of information to remember when Michael Cohen did stand there in that court and implicate the president. If he were not the president of the United States, then Donald Trump would most likely have been standing there right by Michael Cohen's side as a co-defendant. Obviously, there is protocol that some have followed or are choosing to follow where a sitting president cannot be indicted. Um, we don't. That's what special counsel Robert Mueller has said he will stick to. But had it not been that this is the president of the United States, we would have been in a situation where he most likely would have been indicted along with Michael Cohen when there was enough information that prosecutors had most likely seized from the raid they conducted earlier this year on Cohen's home, which includes documents and recordings, one of which we have already heard. So he hasn't been charged with a crime yet. yet. Um, and, okay, he may not be formally charged insofar as we're assuming that Mueller is going to follow these guidelines. It's not a law. It's not an official policy that a president cannot be Indicted. It's just a precedent. Uh, so it's certainly not the rule of law, um, but he will ultimately, it looks like, recommend charges to Congress, uh, which, if you go by the way Republicans responded uh, to the news over the last 48 hours, probably going to fall along familiar partisan lines. Here is Lindsey Graham, uh, once one of Trump's biggest, most vocal critics, responding to the shocking news of both Manafort and Cohen. The bottom line is I'm going to wait till Mr. Mueller makes his report. Uh, the president's not going to resign over the Cohen allegations. And I do believe that he also talked about this idea that in order to impeach, uh, you need to have a few people behind it first. The public support for impeachment has to be great. I learned that during the Clinton days. Which frankly didn't stop House Republicans from no. impeaching Clinton anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, it's it's we talked about this a little bit yesterday. This is this is sort of like I think Republicans hear the TikTok. They know that the um the clock on this presidency is running out, but certainly it's, I mean, the, the presidency is, the presidency itself is certainly in jeopardy. And that means that for them to get what they want politically, 
Like, they're going to have to save face. You know, they're going to have to try and back him up somehow while also threading the needle of not looking like they were an enabler after the fact. Which I think, frankly, is a a little too late. I mean, they certainly look like enablers at this point. I mean, I I know that we can't keep doing this, but can you imagine if the Democrats and Barack Obama were railroading a SCOTUS pick? Oh, God. After he had been named, essentially, uh... In the in the case with Michael Cohen, could you imagine? Well, can, can you even imagine? They wouldn't even let him get a SCOTUS pick, like when he wasn't under eight indictment. months <laughs> oh, before, because it was eight or nine months before an election, yeah. and uh, he, he certainly was far from ever uh, in any kind of legal peril in the way uh, that we've seen. But it's, yeah, you're right; we can't keep doing it. Right. And it, but but still, you you have to because you you have to do it because you have to think about. What has actually transpired, and if it had been any other president, but most important, I think, if you, especially because Republicans are in control of Congress, and they con- constantly made the case during the Obama years that he was unconstitutional, or yeah. his actions were unconstitutional, that he, everything he did was an unprecedented abuse of power, and and that was for the president just passing, enacting policy and using his, the authority he did have to take certain actions through uh, executive orders. And frankly, we, you know, we always used to talk about this at that time um, yeah. during the Obama years on this very show that even then his, the number of executive orders he signed paled in comparison to his predecessors, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton. But I mean, that's such a, a nice, high-minded, nuanced conversation yeah, no, to know. even bother with. <laughs> I think we've uh, left that a long time ago. We, we've left that era of politics. But, you know, there, there, it seems to me there are two different types of Republicans. There are Republicans who are fully in the camp of Donald Trump and will do and say anything that he says and back up anything that he does and says. And then there are those Republicans that like to position themselves as, hey, look, I'm going to be a check on the president. I'm going to make sure that this doesn't get out of control. And those are the ones now who look really silly because they're just not doing their job. I mean, that is that is the job, one of the jobs uh, that they're supposed to be doing. They're just not doing it. Yes, I actually wanted to uh, read a tweet from our good old friend uh, Mitt Romney. Remember him? Oh, yes. Mittens. <laughs> well, Mitt Mitt is short for Mitt. Well, he you is now that. a candidate for U.S. Senate yeah. uh, in the state of Utah, widely favored to win uh, that race. Oh, he's going to win. He's going to win. And he has been one of Trump's most outspoken critics. Now, that was true during the campaign. Then he tried to reconcile his differences with uh, then-president-elect Trump during the transition because he was vying for a secretary of state role. And he got a lot of flack. He got a lot of flack. It was for what many people said was sort of a public humiliation. But honestly, in that moment, I did have this feeling of, okay, yes, it always seems hypocritical for someone who has been one of the most vocal critics of of then-candidate Trump to now be vying for a job in his administration. But Secretary of State being such an important role, it's kind of like, yeah, well, I feel like a lot of people are okay with Mitt Romney, though. In the scheme of choices, I think people would actually rather Mitt Romney get that job. And so if he has to go out to dinner with Trump and look like a little bit of a fool... (laughs) <laughs> oh, uh, he certainly looked like a little bit of a fool. Yeah, I'll give you that. To put it lightly, um, you know, it's it's in the service of of making sure that there are sound people in these positions of utmost importance. Now, ultimately, that job went to Rex Tillerson, and obviously didn't uh, go very well. And now it's uh, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. But 
Getting back to Mitt Romney, he tweeted yesterday, the events of the last 24 hours confirm that conduct by highly placed individuals was both dishonorable and illegal. Also confirmed is my faith in our justice system and my conviction that we are a nation committed to the rule of law. But basically saying conduct of highly placed individuals was illegal. Now, it's a subtweet if I ever saw one, but um, the question becomes, is Mitt Romney, who has also premised his campaign um, in being a check and balance on the president, acting as a check on the president, is that going to bear fruit when he if he's actually in the Senate, or is this the same kind of talk uh, that we saw in uh, the 2016 election cycle, which, as we've seen, has had little impact? Now, the difference, of course, is that Trump is a sitting president, so... Now people have actually seen the way in which he has governed. Governed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you for the air quotes. <laughs> air quotes is um, for those listening and not seeing. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, we were, we're almost become, uh, again, like it's the other conversation we always have. In addition to imagine if Obama did, the other conversation is what will it take for Republicans to Look, actually break with the president? They, they figured it out. They They figured out how they can be just critical enough of the president to not get him to get mad at them and to also not actually do anything, right? Like Jeff Flake is the best example for as much as everybody talks about how great it is that Jeff Flake is standing up to the president. What has he done? What has he actually done to stand up to the president? Right. So, seriously. Nothing. What is it? Point to one thing he's done that actually has stood up to Donald Trump. Not one thing. Not and one he, thing. And his reaction – to uh, the events of the last uh, two days was actually fairly muted coming from one of Trump's most vocal critics who literally wrote a book against the Trump uh, brand of conservatism. Obviously, it's serious. Anytime somebody alleges that uh, the president directed him to do something, it's serious. So we'll see where it goes from here. Okay, so let's start. uh, I mean, mean, come on, man. Sounds pretty serious to me. Yeah, I mean, that could be it. Like, if you played me that clip blindfolded and told me that was a democrat i'd say okay yeah that sounds like a dem-. but like not doing anything not I, doing anything yeah he's had his chance to do something you don't like the direction that donald trump is taking this country switch parties and the same goes switch parties. the same goes for bob corker the uh, chairman of the Senate yeah. foreign relations committee and the thing about people like bob corker and jeff flake is they uh are retiring from congress and so they do not have to face voters once again now obviously um it's it's no I think secret that a lot of the Republican uh, embrace of Trump and the willingness to stand behind him, even when he uh, when they seem to be defending the indefensible, is a political calculation. We are just a few months away from the midterm elections. The Republican base is still overwhelmingly behind Trump. We know what all of the factors are that they've taken into consideration. And at this point, they've made the play and we'll see how um everything unfolds in november but they've made the the calculation that they need to boost turnout and if they turn against the president uh they will not only anger uh the base and potentially uh threaten their own positions uh in as incumbents but then also suppress turnout and uh, potentially lose 
control of Congress. Now, they may well do that anyway, because what they are also doing is bolstering the enthusiasm, which is already there on the left, um, and giving Democrats even more, uh, in, uh, I think, giving Democrats even more uh, truth to the argument that the current governing party is not acting as a check and balance, so that's why you should vote for us. All of which is to say that, uh, you know, Peter, the thing that is is frustrating is I, sometimes I talk to Republican aides and strategists and they say that, what is it that you guys want us to do, right? They'll say that, like, what is it that we can actually do? And they have this sort of argument that Congress is somehow powerless. There's this, uh, there's this sort of shrugging of the shoulders as though Congress has not been granted pretty awesome powers yeah. to, in fact, take matters into their own hands. Now, if you wanna... they want, for example, I mean, they could launch an investigation yeah. into whether or not Trump worked with Cohen to violate campaign finance law. They we don't could, have that's, to... that's a basic thing they could do. We don't have to go for that far back. Like, look at all. Look at what they did during Barack Obama, yeah. right? Like, even if it's just hearings, right? Which again, yes. may or may not do anything, right? And right. I'm one of those believers, people that believe that it's it's not really doing as much as they like to think. But like, even if you have those hearings, how many hearings do they have over Benghazi? Exactly. Over Fast and Furious. Over Fast and Furious, <laughs> right? Two over the IRS. Yeah, <laughs> three, and that's just the three that we can think of right at, right off the There's bat. There's many more. There's so a, many more, but those are three non-issues. Yeah, the, non-issues. And and with regards to how they were looking, at how them. they were looking at them, right? I mean, even if you say that maybe there's something to examine, certainly they stretch them well beyond their lifespan uh, for the purpose of grandstanding. And yes, like you said, hearings can often amount to nothing more than grandstanding. But at least you're showing that you're willing to sit down you give and you're willing to debate yeah. before the public. But that's even, like I said, I mean, okay, so in terms of something that's more concrete, they could launch their own investigation. I mean, they were investigating Russian interference in the U.S. election, and we saw how that turned out. It, of course, devolved into <laughs> uh, pure partisanship in the House and in the Senate. It just kind of hit a roadblock, um, probably for the same reasons, uh, although not as, uh, as much in this, engaged in the same theatrics as their counterparts in the Devin Nunes-led House committee. But, yeah, they could launch an investigation. They could say we're not going to move forward with the Brett Kavanaugh nomination until we have answers to these questions. They could force the president to release his tax returns. They could they could uh, delay other business in the Senate. There, there are a lot of things that if they really wanted to, they could do. They could withhold his other judicial nominees up in, in, the, in the pursuit of a certain level of accountability. What a charming and quaint idea. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't it indeed? Isn't that cute? Well, that's, but that. that's the thing. It's like I, I do think that there's a whole list of things that you could draw up for what can actually be done um, in the legislative branch of government, which through its committees does have fairly incredible authorities granted to it. They have subpoena powers. Uh, they could call witnesses. They could demand documents. There is a lot... Uh, and, and I want, yes, it's a quaint idea at this point, but it, it's sort of like what I, whenever I, I get that re response of like, oh, you know, what is it that you, he's, Trump's going to be Trump. We don't know what you're expecting from us. It's like, I don't know, like maybe use the tools that are already at your disposal. Yeah. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. On that note, <laughs> I think I'll let, leave that as a little bit of food 
for uh, thought. We've got uh, Max Bergman with us on the other side of the break. So uh, stay tuned. Keep on watching and listening to The Bill Press Show. We'll be back with you shortly. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter for The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Thursday morning. And joining me now in studio is Max Bergman, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Follow him on Twitter as well, at Max Bergman. Hi, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. You know, it's a little bit of news yeah. <laughs> these days. <laughs> just a slow August. In, a slow in August. I know, yeah. gosh, remember when August was just, you know, this empty... Uh, kind of dead period in Washington where everyone was on recess and there was nothing to talk about. There's a general rule of thumb now. When Bill is out, <laughs> major news is going to break. Major news. I know, is, is he going just like break. texting from wherever he is? We got we actually got our first email yesterday from Bill, who's on the West Coast, and and it was just like, wow, once again, I picked a hell of a week to be out. Yeah. Well, it's kind of crazy. I know that like some of the uh, senior analysts over at CNN are on vacation this week. Like quite a few of their like regulars yeah. who sit there every day, and we're and it's just like people who have now realized that in the era of Trump, there's never a good time to take a vacation. I mean, last summer when I was headed out of town to Europe, James Comey was testifying <laughs> right. on Capitol Hill about being fired while he was overseeing the FBI investigation into Russia, <laughs> um, but. On that note, though, because a lot of the prevailing questions uh, have centered, have loomed over, where is this all going? Um, and and the trial with of Paul Manafort, this one, of course, had to do with financial dealings. Uh, but I think that the reason I'd like to talk to you about it and the, its implications uh, is you've got a lot of people saying, the president and his allies saying, <laughs> okay, well, no collusion. Like there was nothing from Manafort being found uh, guilty by a jury um, on eight counts of tax fraud and you know, a lot of the you know the financial alleged financial crimes that do tax fraud and wire fraud and bank fraud and hiding foreign accounts. That that has nothing to do. Where's the evidence of collusion? So can you break down one why that was never really part of this in the first yeah. place, but also why it's not unrelated at the same time to Mueller's investigation on Russia. Yeah, I think the first thing that sort of comes across over this week is that there's just so many crimes. <laughs> and I think with Manafort, um, it does have all, everything to do with Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand, you know, the president's claim that this isn't related to the to the campaign is you know technically accurate. But I think in Manafort, what we actually see is the mirror image of Trump, that what was what came out in this trial is Manafort seduced by the chance to sort of uh, basically sell a soul and get rich off of Ukrainian Russian oligarch money uh, goes uh, goes to Ukraine uh, works for the uh, for uh, an, uh, a democratically elected leader Yanukovych but has extremely pro-Russian leanings and moving the country in a very sort of pro-Russian autocratic direction. And in doing so, enriches himself, cheats on his taxes, commits all these financial crimes. And in some ways, when you think, look at the Trump organization, its dealings, particularly after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, opening up Trump Towers in Azerbaijan, in Georgia, in place in the former Soviet Union where, where uh, Russian money sort of pouring into the Trump organization. So there's big questions about Trump's own financial disposition. But what we see with Manafort is someone who got seduced by Russian oligarch wealth, mm. was in some ways entrapped and ca uh, uh, captured by it, 
and then uh, became a criminal because needing to sort of hide that money from the IRS. So. And, and one of the questions that was raised in the trial, which I think alludes to the um, separate investigation and Russian, in, into Russian interference in the election is uh, the fact that Manafort's firm, and this is a, they called you know more than 20 witnesses to testify, yeah. including his former deputy Rick Gates, Manafort's firm was reporting losses in tens of thousands of dollars each month and at the same time, he goes to work for the Trump campaign for free. Yeah. And so the obvious question was why? Yeah. And and he also owed, I think, what, $10 million to at least one Russian oligarch as well? Yeah, to Oleg Deripaska, who's this prominent Russian oligarch who, uh, aluminum magnate, uh, and who has shady ties, uh, allegedly, to the Russian underworld. Now, the, you know, one of the things about Manafort is that uh, and there was another story today, uh, yesterday in the in the Guardian. It was uh, reported on uh, from uh, investigators. Heard of them? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where it outlined that Paul Manafort was actually doing work with this uh, with Oleg Deripaska in Kyrgyzstan in 2005 mm. to rep and to sort of advance Russian interests there. And so what we see with this trial is that Paul Manafort is effectively uh, when you become in ca- uh, sort of entangled in in Russian money that you be potentially become a tool of the Russian state. Mm. And so one of the big things about this trial is how many questions it actually raises. But what was Paul Manafort actually doing on the Trump campaign? How did he get there? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a great Franklin Four article in The Atlantic that describes it in 2015, 2015, year before the election, Paul Manafort was checking himself into a clinic in Arizona for depression mm. and that he was financially on the ropes, couldn't access all his illicit money because the FBI was on to him. Yet then he... Uh, uh, a year later is running the Trump campaign. And so it raises a lot of questions. Here's a guy who looks like a tool of the Russian state running the Trump campaign. And so what this trial was, was setting the predicate. It's basically trying to put additional pressure on Paul Manafort. You start early with charges uh, from a long time ago and hope that you can get his cooperation. And that's why the whole idea of well, no collusion it overlooks the fact that, well, this trial was not to prove collusion. No. This was to try and squeeze associates of Trump on unrelated charges and in the hopes, as you said, of compelling uh, them to cooperate, which worked with Rick Gates, uh, Manafort's deputy uh, on first, you know, in, in his partner in business and then deputy on the campa- Trump campaign. And I think that Mueller was operating uh, under fairly straightforward and tr- like typical playbook, which is follow the money. Yeah. Um, and suddenly, of course, I mean, I, I know that there has to be some sort of uh, spin put out around the fact that a jury did convict Manafort on eight counts and actually was going to convict uh, Peter um, <laughs> on all 18. We learned yeah. from... Paula Duncan, one of the ju- the first juror to come out publicly, and she spoke to Fox News, had it not been for one holdout. How close, I want to know, did this jury come to convicting Paul Manafort on all 18 counts? By one. There was one holdout. So you all agreed on the eight counts. The 10 others, there was one person who kept you from making that next step. That's correct, yes. What was their reasoning, if they shared with you? Reasonable doubt. Um, the person, a female juror, was, um, we all tried to convince her to look at the paper trail. We laid it out in front of her again and again, and she still said that she had a reasonable doubt. So, had it not been for one juror, 
And this, by the way, Paula Duncan confessed to being an ardent supporter of the president. She yeah. said that she drove to that courtroom, the Alexandria courtroom, every day with the Make America Great Again hat in her back seat to remind herself, which wasn't exactly, I think, something that a lot of people want to know, but ultimately she did vote to convict. And right. she's saying it was literally down to just one juror. So pretty strong case, it seems. Yeah, I think the preponderance of evidence, you know, all the reporters that were in the courtroom were just, you know, I think gobsmacked at how much the government had. Uh, and, you know, they had the receipts and it was sort of, impo- I mean, we, there was no defense and there was be in, uh, by Paul Manafort uh, because there was no defense. You know, he didn't uh, uh, call a single witness and the defense just simply rested because they didn't have a counter argument. And, you know, I think what what we see with Mueller and what he's what he's been doing is, you know, it's the, you can make the I'm, I'm sort of shocked that that Republicans are consist are in continuing to insist that, oh, well, there's still no evidence of collusion. There's still no evidence of collusion. We're still nothing about Russia when it relates to Cohen, when it relates to Manafort. I think that's a really dangerous thing for them to hold their hat on because what is quite obvious in how Mueller's proceeding is that he's laying sort of the predicate. Mm. And when he indicted the t- the twelve Russian uh, g- uh, members of Russian intelligence, what you saw was actually an incomplete indictment. He indicted the Russians and then outlined all these Americans mm-hmm. that had participated, had had communicated with them but yet hadn't indicted them. And I think what we clearly see is he's laid the groundwork for a conspiracy against the United States. And now he's identifying certain individuals, Manafort, George Papadopoulos, mm-hmm. that have participated, but he's he's trying to conceal or, or keep that hidden, I think, until uh, he's ready to, to move. Right. Uh, and, and, and the president likes to say that well, he's defended Paul Manafort as a, quote, good man and, and hinted, uh, well, not hinted, but declined to comment on whether or not he'd pardon him, which essentially is declining to rule it out, which yeah. leads to more speculation as to why, and also reinforces why perhaps Paul Manafort's team just pulled the Hail Mary and just went for, went to trial and didn't call any witnesses and uh, didn't have, as you know, a very robust defense to begin with, but it seems like he might be holding out hope. Um, but the thing that I was going to go back to is, you know, people often forget that Paul Manafort, despite the president saying he was only with him for a short while, was actually the campaign chairman for nearly five months, yeah. which included the really pivotal period in which Trump secured the Republican nomination. And there were certain changes as well, if I recall correctly, during the Republican National Convention to the party platform with respect to Ukraine and its and and its positioning around providing lethal assistance to uh, rebels there, and I had Paul Manafort. It was then that some of his ties to Russia started to get a little bit more scrutiny from the media. That was at least one. Yeah, I do believe court documents also showed him to continue to be in contact with some of these um, Russian oligarchs and and associates, associates, and I and one specifically had to ask if if they were watching the news, if they were watching what he was doing on the campaign. No, So, you know, I think with Paul Manafort, if you wanted to run a campaign of collusion with the Russians, it would be good to hire someone who's done it before. And Paul Manafort in 2008 had, that's exactly what he did when he went to work for Viktor Yanukovych to help uh, him win election in Ukraine, uh, the pro-Russian candidate who became the pro-Russian leader. And when Paul Manafort joins the campaign in in March, um, what we see is is a guy who uh, has vast connections with the Russians. 
And, you know, I was at the State Department, one of my, where I was working on Ukraine security assistance. It was one of my major uh, areas of focus. And so, you know, that was the Republican major attack line on the Obama administration mm. was that they didn't provide, that we weren't providing lethal assistance, that uh, we were providing, a, you know, military assistance, but not uh, of the lethal variety. That was every Republican, even Democrats were attacking us. Yes. And so for the big attack line not to make it in was utterly shocking. And the fact that they pulled it out uh, and it was at the direction of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Trump and Paul Manafort and J.D. Gordon, I think tells you everything you need to know about what the campaign's interests were. Right. And, and at the time, Paul Manafort, at least according to some of the court documents, was emailing some of his associates, not just asking if they had seen um, the coverage, but also suggesting if it made him good in the standing of the yeah. same oligarch to whom he owed money. Yeah, I, that he, was... he was in debt for ten, for more than $10 million to Oleg Deripaska. And we, we know that he was uh, his main uh, uh, aide in Ukraine, a guy named Konstantin Kalimnik, who, according to Robert Mueller, is a member of the is a Russian intelligence mm. operative. Uh, this was his his main aide is a Russian intelligence operative. <laughs> Uh, trying to connect with Oleg Deripaska to sort of uh, make his debts right, and and that you know raises so uh, tremendous suspicions about how the camp you know this is the campaign chairman, and we know I think we need to take a step back also and understand that there was a Russian campaign to elect Donald Trump. There right. was this Russian effort, and so the big question is were they coordinating? Right. And here's a guy who had all these contacts, connections, and was trying to meet with and pass messages on. So I think the, that's why we look at the preponderance of evidence here, and it clearly points to a campaign, the campaigns were colluding. And in fact, the infamous Trump Tower meeting in June of 2016 has come back uh, into focus, uh, which also uh, involved Paul Manafort, as well as, of course, Jared Kushner, President's son-in-law, and Donald Trump Jr., his elder son, uh, where that was actually, you, you know, I think sometimes people think of these isolated yeah. Uh, incidents versus the totality um, of a, where you have a very clear pattern of constant communications between members of the Trump campaign or associates of the president, then candidate, uh, constant contact between them and various Russians. And in that, the, uh, the setup to that particular meeting, Donald Trump Jr. was, of course, informed of this Russian campaign to help elect his father and he said if it's what you say i love it yeah words that will forever be enshrined in 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 history but but you know the, the rudy giuliani of who you know is always out there yeah saying something one day and then going back the next day to clarify and, and none of what and, you know he's constantly talking out both sides of his mouth the overwhelming majority of what he says is not even true yeah it's provable lies but you know, he was out there saying the other day um since this is such a critical area of focus for Mueller. That. Well, they didn't know they were meeting with the Russians. Yeah, which is totally absurd. You know, I think one of the things that the Republican Congress has been very successful in protecting Trump by holding all their interviews and and not really holding any public hearings, but holding everything behind closed doors. Mm. When Chuck Grassley, the Senate Judiciary Chairman, uh, he he dropped uh, made public the testimony of Donald Trump Jr., you know, dropped sort of thousands of pages of documents on a late, you know, uh, Wednesday afternoon. And, you know, what was in those testimony was totally shocking, but it didn't really get much play. But what was in there was that Donald Trump Jr. basically said, I was trying to collude with the Russians. I really wanted to collude with the Russians, but I was disappointed at that meeting because the Russians didn't bring the dirt <laughs> on Hillary that I wanted. 
And I think what that meeting shows is that there was a will on the part of the Trump campaign right. to collude. And then what we see, the fact pattern after that is that the Russians dropped information, you know, through WikiLeaks at times that were uh, strategically, you know, advantageous to Trump right, right before the DNC convention, right after the Access Hollywood tape on October 7th. So it looks like they colluded. They wanted to collude. And then we saw this intense Russian campaign to help him. And there's still a lot of unanswered questions, such as why on the same day of that meeting, Trump uh, then later, well, he was first of all at Trump Tower himself. Yeah. Later, he, he then alludes to something big coming. Um, you know, again, you can't connect all the dots just yet, but these are open-ended questions that have yet to be answered. Donald Trump Jr. took a call from a, or spoke with someone on a blocked number. We yeah. don't know who it was. And frankly, in the email exchanges, uh, we're, because he said his pres- his father had no idea that the meeting was taking place, his president's assistant is CC'd on at least one of those email exchanges yeah. in the run-up to the meeting. So the idea that he didn't know... That he didn't know uh, it seems preposterous. It, and then they gave us little reason to believe them because then they lied about the nature of the meeting for days yeah. and kept correcting the record when the New York Times had more and more reporting to prove that they weren't being truthful. We put out probably one of the, the most simplistic pieces I think we've uh, at the Moscow Project. It was called Trump ran the Trump campaign. And we know that because political reporters like yourself that were embedded told us every, you know, every day that Donald Trump makes all the decisions. He's the strategist. All his campaign aides said... Everything goes through Trump. Trump is the boss. And then Trump's business, the way he ran his businesses, if you talk to former executives at the Trump organization, said there's no way that one of his sons was just freelancing. And so what to believe Trump had no idea, what you have to believe, the most important decision of the campaign, whether or not to collude with a hostile foreign power to try to defeat your opponent, was made at a lower level is just sort of completely implausible. And so I think there's no, you know, whether the the major question is whether Mueller is able to get a, a huge amount of evidence, that sort of smoking gun mm-hmm. that just sort of puts this to bed that, of course, Donald Trump knew. But I think any rational uh, analysis of this, you have to assume Donald Trump was fully aware of everything that was happening. Right. And a lot of that will ultimately be um, or we at least expect it to be put in a report um perhaps recommending charges depending on against the president, depending on what he finds um, that would then be delivered to Congress. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so the, the other question becomes, well, given what we've seen so far from Republicans who continue to control uh, both chambers of Congress, now we don't know what happened in the midterm elections, but it's not, even insofar as the talk of a blue wave, there is not necessarily talk of uh, Democrats taking such a decisive majority in the Senate that they would be able to impeach if there was an impeachable offense. Um, Would this ultimately all devolve into a partisan spectacle? Well, you know, it it takes two both sides to determine whether it's going to devolve into a partisan Mm -hmm. spectacle. Currently, that's where the Republican Party has has been. And, you know, I think impeachment has to if uh, the conviction on impeachment has to be bipartisan, requires two thirds of the Senate. So ultimately, it will require Republicans to say enough. Uh, and, you know, we already know that the president uh, broke the law and directed a, a criminal conspiracy uh, in his in his uh, campaign. His campaign. Um, and and, you know, that that should be enough, you know, in any normal world for, you know, the president breaking the law related to his own election uh, and something that clearly was significant. Um 
I, my guess is what will happen is that this is go, what where Mueller is headed is going to be very significant. Now, we don't quite know what the crime will be when we think about Watergate. You know, Nixon, there was other potential mm. crimes that Nixon was uh, committed, but it was the Watergate. It was that scandal that became the thing that brought down the administration. I think in this case, there's also that same sort of challenge. What is the what is the major what is there's a lot of different crimes potentially and I think the where when Mueller releases his report, I think it's going to be incredibly damning of the president of those around him. And I think the president's going to fight like you know fight like hell to stay in office because he knows that he'll be you know, potentially have criminal exposure when he leaves. Right, and uh, you know, yesterday it was reported that the DNC uh, had contacted the FBI to uh, after it appeared to thwart a hack of its voter database. Now, we don't know a lot yet about this um, particular episode, and they said that their information was not compromised. We don't know who was behind it, but of course the DNC was one of the primary targets of the Russians in 2016, mm-hmm. and they hacked their email servers, and then through WikiLeaks released tens of thousands of emails right up ahead of the party convention. But it brings us back to this idea of election security. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, the Trump administration likes to say that they've been very tough on Russia, uh, that they are, they've done everything that they can or are doing everything they can to prevent uh, another attack on U.S. democracy. At the same time, Trump's own intelligence chiefs have sounded the alarm that, that Moscow is actively engaged in ongoing efforts to disrupt the political process and not enough is being done. Yeah, I, I think this talking point that the Trump administration is rolling out that they're tough on Russia is totally absurd. You know, you know, yes, you know, after the attack, an administration tends to be stronger. You know, George W. Bush was stronger against terrorism post 9-11. That the U.S. intelligence community report came out on January 6th of 2017, just two weeks left in the Obama administration. It's been up to the Trump administration to um, respond to Russia's interference. And there's no way to say that their response has been strong, because if it had been strong, we wouldn't be seeing a continued attack against our election system, against our political parties, our political candidates. Russia has not been deterred. There's a reason why we haven't really had to worry about foreign interference you know, before this last election. It's because that normally countries would never do this Mm. because they would know that if the United States found out, it would have severe repercussions. We don't need laws. We have the United States military, U.S. sanctions, the ability of the United States to respond aggressively and forcefully to such uh, such an attack on our democracy. The fact that we've had such a sporadic, you know, all over the place response where the one hand, you know, beginning the administration, Tillerson's trying to have a good relationship with Russia, Trump with the Helsinki <laughs> summit, and then they're issuing sanctions. It's a schizophrenic policy and it isn't deterring Russia. It isn't deterring, uh, you know, anyone that is seeking to uh, to interfere in our... Uh, and it was like pulling teeth to get the president to sign those sanctions. Yeah. No, he was... He They fought them tooth and nail. Uh, the president, when he signed them, complained that he had to uh, <laughs> sign them. And then the implementation, they haven't really implemented the sanctions. Mm. Um, and this is one of the things that the, we know that sanctioning uh, uh, Russian oligarchs that are closely connected to Putin is the best way to strike back at him uh, and undermines his his grip on power. And they haven't really done that. There's been a few, uh, f- you know, H.R. McMaster on his last day 
uh, pushed through a whole bunch of sanctions, but we haven't really seen anything since, and that was back in April. Um, and so we've actually seen an incredibly weak response from this administration, haphazard, where and also from the Republican Congress that there's a bill right now that that is on that was supposed to be on the Senate floor was supposed to move forward and McConnell just just pulled it uh, that was going to provide additional support for election security to protect our voting system and the Republicans haven't pushed pushed it through right and they, that of uh, House uh, counterpart to that bill that similarly would have boosted election security uh, spending was voted down by uh, Republicans in the lower chamber. And they've argued that, well, they already appropriated uh, funds and that's sufficient when obviously because the threat is so ongoing, Democrats are arguing, one, to boost the number and fund it through the fiscal year of 2019. Seems reasonable when you have these dire warnings from intelligence chiefs. Uh, Trump's own intelligence chief. (laughs) One of the many, many uh, uh, discussions we could continue another day. But thank you so much for joining us this uh, morning, Max Bergman. Uh, Of course, you can follow his work at AmericanProgress.org and on Twitter at Max Bergman. We'll be taking a break. Daniel Lippman joining us on the other side of the show. So stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, top of the hour. Uh, political report at The Guardian, of course. That's me filling in for Bill on this uh, Thursday morning. I keep thinking it's Friday. Every, every weekend, the Trump administration yeah. feels like uh, a year. <laughs> exactly. Our friend Daniel Lippman is here, a polit- reporter at Politico and co-author of Playbook. Um, gosh, we've got so much to talk about. In case you hadn't heard, there's been a little bit of news this week. Uh, there has, uh, and I don't think we. I don't think people in DC have slept since. So. I don't think they have. I, I could certainly speak for myself and say um, it's been an exhausting but exhilarating couple of days. Uh, something that we'll definitely talk about, uh, probably tell our grandkids about, and we'll actually break it all down in just a few moments. But first. <laughs> This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple other stories making news. Okay, so the Walt Disney Company has 80,000 hourly employees. And yesterday they announced that they are going to make all of those employees eligible to take online college courses. And the bill will be taken care of by the Walt Disney Company. That was the announcement from Chief Executive Officer Bob Iger. Uh, yesterday, they had originally earlier this year said that they were going to make a fifty million dollar education investment program uh, f- available for all their employees, but they fleshed it out a little bit. They uh, also pointed out, by the way, that the reason that this is possible is because they are paying hundreds of millions of dollars less than they usually do because of the tax cuts, the tax bill mm. that, that Republicans and Donald Trump uh, got through earlier this year. 
they they said that because they have all this money left over, those money that they're not going to have to pay, they're able to uh, help their employees get a college education. So. Hmm. There you go. I remember heard, remember the tax cuts. No one I, is talking I about that anymore. About that right? tax yeah, remember really, that? Republicans that? aren't even talking about the tax cuts. Yeah. We talk a lot about distracted driving. Obviously, don't try and drive when you have a cell phone in your hand or anything like that. One thing you also got to be careful of is driving with flip-flops. There was a woman who was driving in New Jersey where she had her flip-flop she was in New Jersey. get caught on the accelerator of her car as she plowed right into a 7-Eleven. Police actually pointed out, like, you want to be careful if you're wearing flip-flops behind the wheel because this is not the first time that's happened. What? Well, like, if for this whatever is a reason. Thing? And I'm just like, I didn't know this is a thing. Like, I mean, like, oh, I drive, don't wear flip-flops and drive. Every, everyone has done that. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've driven with flip-flops before, yeah. and I've never had that specific problem, but, like, they will fall off or get caught or whatever, and the cops were just saying, like, this is a good opportunity just, like, be careful out there. Okay. Be careful out there. Also, an update on the story I talked about yesterday, Hurricane Lane. Hurricane Lane continues to build strength. Over a million people in Hawaii oh. are already seeing the first signs of Hurricane Lane. It's Category 4 cyclone. It would be the first major hurricane to make landfall in Hawaii in 26 years. The thing is, oh obviously, a lot of hurricanes pass by Hawaii in that you know, on their way to other places, but it, Hawaii ever rarely ever actually deals with a hurricane or a cyclone. But they're saying that this is moving pretty. What is closely. it expected to make landfall? When? Yeah. Uh, For those of, who are, might be planning a vacation, get away to yes. Hawaii. Are you going to Hawaii? I'm not. Soon? Apparently, I'm not now because. Well, here, here, <laughs> here, here, time. Here's what forecasters are currently saying: It has sustained winds of 145 miles per hour and says it is currently quote on course to pass very close end quote to the islands or make landfall from Thursday through Friday. So it could still take a turn and not hit it directly. But that will time will tell, right? So it'll be, you know, either later today into tomorrow that this could uh, we could find out yeah. the fate. Well, at least the Obamas are not there. They're, I think they're on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, oh right, yeah, didn't in August. To Hawaii. Right, right. I right. just hope those guys don't accidentally hit the North Korea nuclear missile attack is coming siren by accident again. <laughs> that yeah, please don't do that. <laughs> Too Good soon? grief, Sorry. no, please don't <laughs> do that. So please be safe out there if you're listening in Hawaii or watching in Hawaii. Hurricane Lane is on its way. Back in 10. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Welcome back. Uh, Daniel Lippman, of course, is here with us in studio to break it all down, uh, talk about the politics of. Everything from Manafort and Cohen to uh, impact on midterm elections and even just what in general has been going on in the <laughs> midterms because there's so much news that I, I feel like that's like and Washington five on like the, the you know, and they're bias. only 75 days away. Only how many? I think 75 days. Wow. away. So we're getting so close. And so I guess first and foremost, we were talking a little bit about how Republicans were in response to uh, both the Manafort guilty verdict as well as Cohen implicating the president while uh, pleading guilty in court uh, to federal campaign vi finance violations, as we've come to expect, 
pretty much uh, shrugging their shoulders, saying, well, there's an investigation, we'll see, but also, well, this doesn't seem, this isn't collusion. So is that really we're, the, the, the bar that they want to set, that anything short of collusion is, is not anything to worry about? I think they're worried about the impact on their own election uh, strategy, because if they continue in the pylon that Democrats and parts of the media uh, are doing in the wake of uh, the news about uh, Cohen and Manafort, then that's only going to hurt their chances. And so why would they willingly do that? Uh, And they don't want to get attacked by Trump. He's driven out uh, a number of Republicans from the party, from Bob Corker, Jeff Flake. He's hit Ben Sass uh, over the years, John McCain. And so if you're a Republican who wants to keep your job, you're uh, you really should you know keep your head down low. But that isn't dissuading people like uh, Carlos Corbello from Florida, uh, a Republican congressman who distanced himself again from Trump uh, because his district, uh, Hillary Clinton, won handily. And so any district that Hillary won uh, in 2016 and you're a Republican congressman, you should be worried because uh, the outlook is not improving. And and the general American public is— uh, more trustworthy now of the uh, man of, of the Mueller probe, a Fox News poll came out uh, saying that it had, you know the approval of uh, how Mueller is doing has increased by I think over ten points. Yeah, and that's a Fox News poll. Yeah. So so that's the thing. I think Republicans have kind of created this alternate universe. Uh, whenever you go to the up to the Manhattan Capitol Hill, they talk about how they're just focused on their agenda. These are all distractions. As you said, they're trying to keep their head down. We all know what the uh, political strategy is, but uh, they sort of dismiss the president as a separate figure who has his own controversies that are, that don't really touch upon them or the work that they're doing. But the question becomes, is that at what point does that start to hurt them with, let's say, uh, suburban women or some of those independents or moderate Republicans who were willing to give them a chance in 2016, uh, thinking, OK, well, they're going to act as a check and balance or even just you've seen the turnout. Uh, turnout is is uh, has been high on both sides in some of these special elections, but it's exponentially higher on the Democratic side. So doesn't this then in turn actually help energize voters on the left? No, I think there's no question that uh, it seems like every day voters on the left get more energized. Uh, and we can only wonder what's going to happen next uh, in a couple months. Uh, you have Manafort going on trial again uh, for uh, separate charges related to not registering as a foreign agent. Uh, and that's happening in mid-September. And so that's going to just keep uh, Russia and Mueller in the news. Uh, and that's not great for Republicans because how do you run uh, a, a strategy uh, to win uh, when you have this hanging over you? Uh, I would caution people that uh, in a ton of states and districts, most people are not in the bubble we live in, where mm-hmm. they have families, they have jobs, uh, they're not working in politics and media, and so they will catch a couple minutes a day of news, and so and they may get they may a lot of people are tired of the Russia story, mm-hmm. and so even if you have amazing uh, uh, blockbuster developments, uh, they s- still you know always the number one question is uh, does a politician represent people like you or do you feel like they're on your side right and so uh there are individual republicans who will who will win because they are better politicians uh and you know they are listening to their constituents on other issues maybe not trump but uh you know if you're good constituent services that goes a long way if you call up a uh, your republican or democratic congressman and say my social security check 
isn't arriving, can you help me on this? And he does, or his office uh, fixes it. Then that you you remember that uh, trust right. me and so you're you're gonna maybe cut him a break uh, for uh, not going hard enough against Trump uh, even if you find him vulgar and everything right this may not be the priority and I think that Democrats are s- somewhat cognizant of that so it seems because one thing that they don't want to do is talk about impeachment the I word even because they don't want to say it in fact Nancy Pelosi responding to the Cohen guilty plea. Uh, said that this this is well she downplayed that it was an impeachable offense that there need there would need to be more we'll see where Mueller's investigation turns up but in general Democrats seem to want to avoid talking about impeachment even if some within their base are eager for them to actually campaign on it why is that I think it it's just like Republicans uh, pure political uh, calculus where in all the any voter who wants to impeach Trump, they are going to vote for Democrats no matter what. And so it doesn't really add to your voter voter base. And you're going to just turn off some moderate Republicans who aren't ready for impeachment yet. And so it may feel good, but uh, you th- people shouldn't do just things that just make them feel good. That's in politics, life, everything. Uh, and so uh, I think they're going to hope to if they take control of the House and possibly the Senate, do lots of oversight investigations. And that's not a secret. They have said they will do that. But what they also don't say is that they will. One of the reasons they're going to do that is if they can show they're making progress and holding Trump accountable, then the uh, then that will help keep the impeachment uh, I word at bay for Mm. as long as they can, because uh, they I guess they feel like they can, uh, and we haven't played this out completely, and we haven't looked at the polls, but if they impeach him, uh, Trump, they get Pence. And, you know, Pence is anathema to uh, most Democrats. And, uh, you know, it's we we don't know his chances of winning in 2020. Uh, people have short memories. And so if he's able to have a year of success and normalcy, uh, and he's, a, he's one of the... Uh, Republicans who's not going to have a trade war. He's not going to tweet. Yeah, he's very socially conservative, but fairly orthodox as a politician. And so the and if you have a weak Democrat or someone who's divisive, uh, then or someone who doesn't uh, isn't a right fit against Pence, then you could get four more years of Pence. And Mm -hmm. so do Democrats really want that or do they just want to keep Trump as a wounded animal until 2020? And I think that we and this is something we touched upon with. Max Bergman, um, just before you joined, uh, that people sometimes forget about the math, that you need a two-thirds majority in the Senate to convict if you're going to impeach. And that would mean that Democrats would need Republican crossover, and that's not going to happen. You just need... that can't happen, but you need overwhelming evidence. Right. You basically need, like, a smoking gun. And, uh, yeah, and yes, I, we don't have the smoking gun either. No, like, the... Uh, although... Helping facilitate a crime isn't great for Trump yeah. when you're when you're like the candidate A right. in a federal uh, yeah. plea deal. But that's not, not collusion, so don't worry about it. That's, what that's just that's said. just uh, you know paying off a woman yeah. for sex. That's, <laughs> well, that's the that's the universe we live in, where that's sort of a that's uh, it's like well, well well we thought we were looking for collusion, so don't worry about that other stuff. But was one thing that Democrats are pushing for in the wake of. Uh, the um, Manafort plea, uh, sorry, Manafort verdict and the Cohen plea 
is this notion that Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court um, nominee, should not be confirmed. Now, we already know that Democrats were seeking to block Trump's nominee. This, of course, dramatically tips the balance of the court. Neil Gorsuch was someone who was ultimately replacing the late Anthony Scalia. So it was still, you know, overall, I think, not having a, in, in their eyes as long-lasting implications. But we had Cory Booker, actually, um, and Richard Blumenthal talking about why the events of the last 48 hours are a game changer with respect to the Kavanaugh nomination. The Judiciary Committee should cease uh, um, uh, reviewing uh, or the hearings that are scheduled for about two weeks from now uh, and deal with the matter of a president being credibly implicated uh, or alleged to be a criminal co-conspirator. And then Richard Blumenthal actually also chimed in. Uh, let's take a listen to what he had to say. He's been nominated by a president who's been implicated in a criminal conspiracy. There is no way that his nomination will be untainted. The court itself will be stained if this nomination proceeds. So, um, <laughs> theatrics, some truth to it, or frankly, I mean, we're not here to really weigh the necessarily um well, we're I, you know we're here to weigh the truth, but just well, not we're, we're not we're, we're not opinion to, yeah, people. Tr- we're not we're not here to, uh, to draw opinions, but but I guess the argument they're making is one, the nomination itself is illegitimate because it, it's it's been made by someone who has now b- been named as a co-conspirator in a federal crime, and two, they can't trust that the nominee in this case Brett Kavanaugh wouldn't if this issue if the president's wrongdoings made their way to the Supreme Court that he would not then in turn. Um, well, not pardon, but but like lean favorably, right? Rule in the president's favor. Uh, yeah, and I guess the we haven't gotten a certain answer about would he recuse himself in that such a scenario because uh, you know he and Gorsuch have both been appointed. I don't know the uh, how legal expert experts and ethics think about these types of things, but the fact of the matter is, uh. Donald Trump is the president of the United States right now, and so he has the ability to nominate uh, justices. And so, and Brett Kavanaugh, it's not like he nominated Rudy Giuliani to be the <laughs> Supreme Court justice. And so, Can Brett you Kavanaugh, imagine? <laughs> that would have been a crazy. But the uh, yeah, Brett Kavanaugh would have been nominated almost in any Republican, Republican president. And mm-hmm. so, not a huge surprise that uh, you know, he is uh, in line there, and he has a ton of Democratic friends. But in terms of your question, this doesn't I don't see this going anywhere because Republicans have the votes. They're going to try to plow through this unless there is dirt on Kavanaugh. Then uh, this looks like it's going to go through Uh, and then we will just wait and see. And I think you, you know, you think about how, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh would vote on this. If he's put in to the Supreme Court, then John Roberts becomes a swing vote. And since he's the chief justice, he cares much more about the uh, legitimacy of the court and how its legacy is going to be. And if his legacy is seen as, uh, th- you know, throwing out a or helping Trump avoid criminal prosecution if he needs to, or uh, that is not going to be a good legacy. Uh, that will really hurt the court's reputation. They should be taking this on a what, are, what does the law say? And and Kavanaugh got a big boost of support, uh, so it seemed from uh, Susan Collins, who met with him 
and came out and said that he assured her that Roe v. Wade is settled law. Um, Although, you know, they say that until it's not settled law anymore. Well, that's what I was going so. to say is Neil Gorsuch has said he authored a whole book on precedent and then broke with 41-year precedent in the Janus uh, ruling the one over uh, organized labor. Although this is not like completely equivalent because, <laughs> you know, Roe v. Wade is more of an important precedent to right. most Americans. I think the backlash would be uh, far more uh, widespread yeah. and you'd probably have uh, probably in the same way that they have sometimes weighed some of these issues such as LGBT rights and uh, and some of the more immigration, some of the more socially conscious issues. Uh, they even though they say they're off, they're operating on interpretation of law. There's also a sense that they are also taking into account public opinion in the way in which it shifted. Right. I, I was going to say I, this is not a, necessarily even a knock on on uh, the, the justice that's that's trying to make this happen or that's trying to get confirmed, but like. Just because they say it now does not mean that they can find an out for this later, right? And there's an interesting poll out that was showing that if Susan Collins votes to confirm Kavanaugh, that could really piss off her constituents, right? Because she's one of the main people here at the heart of this confirmation hearing. Mm -hmm. And that uh, Maine voters would not be pleased if she was to push this through. Well, she and Lisa Murkowski, a senator from Alaska, are the two pro-choice Republicans in the Senate. They are still left. Uh, There there were many before. Yeah, who are still left. And they are seen as two of the more moderate uh, members of the Senate Republican conference. But um, I think that they've shown a willingness to support Trump's judicial nominees, as you said, in some ways, because Brett Kavanaugh could have been nominated by any Republican president. Um, they may be willing to walk the plank and then we'll see how it plays out later on in their home states. Yeah, I think they, they see it as a fait accompli and that, uh, there's, they, they would face a bigger backlash from their own colleagues and from conservative voters in their states if they, uh, opposed Kavanaugh. And so, you know, it's just, you know, every time you have to make a, a vote on these things, you make a choice. And they feel like this is their their best choice for them, uh, both uh, politically and also policy wise. And we're not even sure how some of them red state Democrats will vote on this nomination. It may not even be that the Republicans need the support of Collins right. and Murkowski because Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota and Joe Donnelly of Indiana are all up for reelection in red states. All three of them voted for Neil Gorsuch. Now, Democrats I've spoken with on the Hill say, well, this is different. Neil Gorsuch was just reaffirming the balance of the court. They know the implications of Brett Kavanaugh. But no, that's that's sort of the public argument when you're weighing your uh, re-election in a state that overwhelmingly went for Trump, you may look at it differently. But you also could take the other uh, view that uh, if they supported Gorsuch, who a lot of people feel like took a seat that was uh, a Democratic uh, choice uh, should have been Merrick Garland in the eyes of many Democrats. Then, if they're willing to support him, uh, then 
the stolen seat. Yeah, then, <laughs> yeah. then uh, not a surprise if they support Kavanaugh. Well, but by the way, I wanted to read this tweet because this came out last night from uh, Mark Warner, senator from Virginia. Uh, he said, given the news yesterday, Judge Kavanaugh's views on executive power are more important than ever. We need his full record, not just the parts we've been given. The Senate should not hold hearings until we get the missing documents. Mark Warner, not exactly one of those firebrand liberals, um, you know, we played the clips earlier of Cory Booger and uh, and and uh, Richard Blumenthal, so now you can add Mark Warner to that list. But is that going to be enough? Probably not. Yeah, I don't think it is. <laughs> well, they had I a dispute over the documents, and then ultimately Republicans released the tranche of documents. But it seems like at this, and then now Chuck Grassley, we also know, you know he uh, this was uh, this was as of a couple weeks ago had scheduled a at you know two to three days of here. It'll be at least two days, if not three days, of hearings. Um, coming up after Labor Day, the week the, that same, um, and I think as you were putting, I think Susan Collins was one of the big question marks, and she didn't. I don't think she explicitly said she was going to vote for him, but the the Roe v. Wade question was what everyone interpreted as her saying that she would all but saying that her main concern had been addressed, and Democrats I think just don't have the. Um, I mean, I think they just have limited tools at their disposal. They can't even if you have some of the non-progressive members of the caucus uh, speaking out it's you, not enough yeah you can't the rules are the rules and so and the rules have been changed over the years by both parties uh, whenever they're in power they're uh, finding ways to get their nominees across uh, the finish line and so uh, that's something that a lot of senate historians and people who just like the old senate rules they they don't like the fact that uh, it used to be able to you would have you'd have to have 60 votes or you know more to pass uh, certain nominees. Absolutely. And I kind of want to switch gears a little bit because this story on any other day would probably, we say this all the time, but on any other day, you could imagine this would be headline news. It would be all over TV um, because it came out on the same day as Manafort and Cohen. It was sort of uh, lost somewhat in uh, the fray, but Duncan Hunter... <laughs> Republican congressman from California uh, indicted um, basically for uh, misuse of campaign funds. He and his wife have been uh, spending lavishly uh, after dipping into a campaign cash um, on everything from vacations to Hawaii and Italy and the thousands of dollars to even modest day-to-day purchases like movie tickets. I mean, it's fairly remarkable. Maybe he was just educating himself uh, watching uh, Dinesh D'Souza film or or Al Gore's documentaries. (laughs) But it's remarkable. And this is the second indictment of a sitting Republican congressman in recent months. First, it was Chris Collins from New York of Insider Trading. And these were the first two members of Congress to endorse candidate Donald Trump. And the third is Jeff Sessions, who hasn't had an easy 18 months either. The third is Jeff Sessions, and to recuse himself from overseeing, uh, recuse himself from the Russia investigation because he failed to disclose contacts he had with the Russians while being a surrogate on Trump's campaign. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, a whole separate conversation about the charges themselves um, and what the implications might be. Now, now, Duncan Hunter said he absolutely intends to seek re-election. He's saying that, well, because of the rules, he can't, it's going to be difficult for him to even get off the ballot. He's certainly refusing to resign. I mean, I think if resigning, resignation would be the only way 
uh, for for Republicans to be able to nominate someone else for this seat. But actually, he was talking about this to reporters um, about the charges against him. And let's just take a listen to his response, because honestly, I, I it's, it's sort of one of those moments where you don't even have the words. This is the new Department of Justice. This is the uh, the Democrats arm of law enforcement. That, that's what's happening right now. And it's happening with Trump and it's happening with me. And we're, we're going to fight through it and win. <laughs> this is the Democrats' <laughs> arms awesome. of justice. This is a, Jeff Sessions is the attorney general. The big Democrat, as we know. Even yeah. the liberal Jeff Sessions. And, like, you know, <laughs> it's, it, literally this is the Trump administration's Department of Justice. I, I don't it's I guess, like, everyone's just do, using the Trump playbook. Like, this is a conspiracy against me. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, you know, it's a easy argument to make uh, if you're a in the Fox News bubble when you're thinking, well, uh, DOJ is totally against me. If you're all all you're doing is reading Trump's tweets, but uh, Republicans and uh, Duncan Hunter's colleagues, they're really sick of this. They want him to go away right now because it really it, Democrats have always have a been already trying to turn this into the cor- corruption election. Mm. You know, talking about Scott Pruitt and various scandals. Uh, but this just this gives them such fuel for their fire that uh, Republicans are embarrassed by this. I was going to say, I mean, this a lot of their messaging has been around this idea of Trump's Washington being a culture of corruption, as as you just alluded to, and now they can actually tie. You know, Republicans a lot of their responses we were talking about earlier has been to say, well, that's Trump. You know, that's we that has nothing to do with us. We're keeping our head down and working on the issues. But here is a guy will be directly tied to that same culture of corruption. Yeah, and uh, there is very little defense of this these charges. What is he going to say? That, uh, you know, he forgot to re- reimburse himself or use the wrong credit card? Yeah, uh, <laughs> and so, like, this makes anything that Rubio did, uh, you know, look like child's play. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, some of the quotes, I mean, everyone should uh, read the uh, indictment here. We're going to take, take a break, but it's, 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 it's something that was remarkable because he also was insulting service members. There was a point where he says, and I quote, I'm not going to quote it directly, but the Navy can go F themselves. Yeah. Because they weren't willing to take a meeting with him in Italy that would have justified his use of campaign dollars to be in Italy with his wife on a paid vacation. At one point, they tried to. He went to buy shorts, and his wife was like, "Just say it's like we bought golf balls for the troops for the wounded warriors." For the wounded project. warriors, right? So, like, it, this is a guy. <laughs> this is a guy who was hid behind the military for political gain for a long, he's a veteran long time. Himself. He's a veteran himself. He should know better. He should absolutely know better. And actually, what someone's pointing out to me, uh, Rick Tyler used to work on a cruise campaign, now like burned his Republican Party card, and you know, one of those <laughs> never Trump Republicans, not really Republican, now not nothing. But um, he's not nothing. He's, yeah. he's, 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 in, he's the uh, Steve Schmidt, uh, Rick yeah, Wilson yeah. party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole like, the yeah. Evan McMullen party. Um, <laughs> but like he was saying, uh, one thing about um, the district in Southern California where Duncan Hunter uh, is a congressman is that um, there's a lot of it's very much populated by uh, members of the armed services, Navy, Army heavy, Army, Navy heavy. Uh, San so, Diego is uh, San Diego is huge. <laughs> huge. Uh, so, there's a huge uh, military stage. voting block. There. So you can imagine special force people uh, what yeah. those comments are going to do. Six. And I actually think that you know, you know, from a national perspective, he was probably the luckiest guy um, there could be in so far as this not getting much attention on Tuesday because of the Cohen and Manafort stories. But at the local level, 
Well, look, this, this is all they're probably going to talk about in his is in his in his reelection. Well, look, this is a guy that said such nasty things about the American military and American or members of the American military that the only job he could get would be president. Because <laughs> the only other person that said oh, nastier oh, things blah. about the military is Donald oh. Trump, and he seems to be doing just fine. Well, that but the one thing we learned is what works for Trump literally works for no one else. That's true. That is true. Duck, Duncan's not uh, as smart as enough as Trump. No. <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, don't insult the Navy <laughs> and don't pretend that your purchases are gifts for wounded warriors. It's not, oh, that's not a good rule of thumb. Uh, Daniel Lipman, thank you so much for joining Thanks, us this Sabrina. morning. Don't Welcome. forget to follow his work. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at DLipman. Read his work, of course, at politico.com. Uh, we will be back with you on that other side of this break with Zoe Tillman from BuzzFeed. So don't go away. Stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. Nearing the end of our program, and we're going to save what I always like to say, save the best for last. So uh, no pressure to Zoe <laughs> Tillman uh, covering courts and justice for BuzzFeed. Uh, but no, I look, uh, we've had such a, a, a great show talking about Manafort and Cohen and, you know, just the events of the last 48 hours which is uh which have sent shockwaves uh, across the country frankly around the world people are just wanting to know what it all means um but what i what i really wanted to hear from you because you were actually inside the courtroom is this the inside story that you've written about what it was like to be on the inside as all of this drama was unfolding well i should say what was wild was on the verdict day which was now two days ago. So inside the federal courthouse in Alexandria, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia, it's very old school, no phones, no computers, no nothing. Um, So we had no way of knowing what was going on with Michael Cohen until someone had gone outside to check their phone Mm. and then came back into the courtroom and just sort of announced that he was going to be pleading guilty in a half hour. But it was this bizarre situation. This is a reporter who? The, another reporter had gone outside to check their phone and all of us were sitting in the, because there's no way to know. Yeah. So we were all sitting there, maybe the only people in the country who had who didn't know <laughs> that right. this was going to happen. Um, so, and I think that was really emblematic of the whole experience of, you know, just being there with a pen and paper and really focused on the trial at hand. There were no distractions for better or for worse. Um, but it was a scene. It was... Um, we had a lot of reporters, obviously, but a lot of retirees from Northern Virginia and the Alexandria area would come out throughout the trial and line up early in the morning to get in. So it was a mix of, you know, frantic journalists and pretty chill uh, older folks <laughs> from Northern Virginia. There was um, one woman who spent a lot of the trial knitting oh, gosh. during the testimony. Um, it's a good time to get things done. Friends, like groups of friends would come out to the trial. It's sort of someone described it to me as, you know, it was entertainment yeah. in a way that this was something to do. It was of great public interest. It was. Is Paul Manafort any friends? Left? <laughs> Were there any friends? I mean, his, his wife, I know, was there. His wife was there. She was usually accompanied by at least one friend or two. Um, and then his spokesman was there the whole time. So they kind of occupied the first row behind the defense table was always where Kathleen Manafort was. Uh, everyone respected that that was sort of their space. Mm. And the court artists would also sit in the front row because we really rely on them to be the eyes of what would be cameras. Um, and, yeah, so it was a very analog experience. Was there any moment there when... I don't want to say a jaw-dropping moment, where, but where 
everyone just sort of fell silent where it was maybe a turning point or just something that prompted, you know, that real uh, kind of more visceral reaction from people inside the courtroom. I think that that happened when Rick Gates took the stand. Rick Gates was Paul Manafort's former longtime associate, his right hand man is how everyone had described him. Uh, He had been charged with Manafort originally and then took a plea Mm -hmm. deal cooperated with Mueller's office, was now the government's star witness. And the case was really very much about him and whether the jury was going to believe what he had to say, which was there was a moment where the questioning turned from his biographical information, who are you, let's introduce you, and then the prosecutor switched right into, you know, did you commit crimes? Mm. Yes. And the courtroom got very quiet. And then it was, you know, did you commit crimes with Paul Manafort? Yes. And I think that was one of the more dramatic moments uh, in the in a trial that was otherwise very dry. It was a lot of numbers. It was forensic accountants and bookkeepers mm. talking about tax law and accounting methods. I've never learned so much about accounting <laughs> methods. <laughs> accountants um, got their day in court. Very literally. much so. <laughs> um, I think there were some some lighter moments early on where the government put on witnesses about what Paul Manafort spent his money on. And that was where we heard from representatives from these high-end clothing Ooh, stores. An ostrich jacket? Was that what it was? It was an ostrich jacket. We didn't hear about that in court. Okay. That came out. Uh, the judge kept a lot of that out of okay. the courtroom. He didn't want the jury to spend a lot of time looking at photos of jackets, even <laughs> though those photos did go back to the jury. Um, but we had some very well-dressed gentlemen who came in from New York who represented these high-end clothiers, um, some pretty you know, interesting witnesses who just talked about doing work for Paul Manafort and what they did for him. We had a, a landscaper who talked about all the different flower arrangements, uh, very elaborate flower arrangements at Manafort's home, including a red and white display near the driveway that had an M huh. spelled out in flowers. Wow. So there were some interesting interesting yeah. moments in um, what was a very number-heavy case. And what was Paul Manafort's demeanor like uh, throughout this trial? He obviously didn't take the stand. The defense didn't call any witnesses. My understanding was he was fairly quiet. That's based on news reports. But you know, were you able to get a sense of, or was he was he composed? Was there any emotion on his face? Was he engage, interacting at all with, with his wife or others? Um, he was very stoic throughout the whole trial. He would walk in. Uh, there was a door at the side of the courtroom where he would be brought in by the guards. He's currently in jail pending trial in the D.C. case. Um, but he would come in, you know, very well-dressed, nice suits, um, not the colorful suits that we saw in the photos, more subdued, um, but he always looked very put together. He would come in. He would um, usually look to where his wife was and either nod or smile at her. There wasn't, I don't believe they were allowed to have Mm. any real interaction or to talk, um, but he would acknowledge her and then sit down and then for most of the trial, he really just watched. He just watched the witnesses. He watched the lawyers. He took some notes. He did confer with his lawyers, but it wasn't. Uh, there wasn't a sense of activity coming from him. It was. It was more. It was quiet and it was mm. watchful. What was the dynamic like between him and uh, Rick Gates? Rick Gates did not look at Paul Manafort. Mm. Uh, his the witness box sort of faced the jurors mm-hmm. and the council tables were behind that. And Paul Manafort stared with laser focus at Rick Gates while he testified. And Rick Gates 
did not look over at mm. the defense table. He talked to the jury. He talked to the lawyers. Uh, when he had to, when the defense was cross-examining him, he looked at the defense lawyer at the podium. But I never saw him make the few feet over to look at Paul Manafort. Mm. And so what then happens inside the courtroom when the verdict is announced? It was it was very anticlimactic. There was some uncertainty about when we would be getting the verdict. We knew that the jury was having trouble reaching a consensus on some counts, and the judge was really waiting until the last minute to decide when he was going to accept a partial verdict. He had initially instructed them to go back and keep deliberating, so we didn't get a verdict at first. And then we got a second note saying, uh, I should say, you know, we got a note and we don't know what the note is. So everyone files back into the courtroom and you don't know what's coming. There wasn't an announcement of a verdict before. Um, and the note said we couldn't reach a consensus. And then the judge just up and announced, let's bring them in and let's get the verdict. Um, mm. The judge said he didn't want reporters running in and out. So he directed any reporters who wanted to leave midway to go to an overflow room on the sixth floor. And then some guards were stationed at the back of the room to stop any reporters basically from leaving until the presentation was done. Mm. So they really, they essentially locked down the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And jury came back in and the verdict form was handed to the the judge's clerk. And she just read off the verdict Mm -hmm. right then and there. Now, this, of course, came in the fourth day of deliberations. And... You you were there for the trial, and there were obviously um, questions over what might be going on behind the scenes, and people certainly were aware through news reports that they were hung up on. um, They had some questions about what to to do if they don't agree on certain counts. And uh, I guess having seen this, the, the trial play out, in person, were you surprised by the verdict? Were you expecting more, less? I I think it was the presentation was dense. You had to really be paying attention to make sense of the numbers that the prosecution was putting forward in terms of tracking all of Paul Manafort's money. You know, it, I have a stack of notebooks maybe a foot high from the trial. Mm. And, you know, so I don't think it's surprising that the jurors may have had some disagreement about, you know, whether they were convinced by all of that. There was a report from Fox News. They had a juror, the first yes. juror to speak out last Paula night. Paula Duncan. Paula Duncan, who said it was one holdout in the end, that m- the majority of them were convinced. Um, how they got to that point, we, we don't really know. We don't. I don't think it was clear from her whether they all started, whether it started as 11 against one or whether that was an evolution and by the end, That's where they were at on the first day of deliberations. We got questions that suggested they really were, they had some pretty serious questions about understanding the financial elements of the case. They asked very specific questions that dug into some of these uh, issues of when are you supposed to report foreign bank accounts, how much of an interest do you need in those accounts, um, how do you define certain terms that came up during the testimony. So uh, surprise, I don't know. It was it was a very complex case. This wasn't, I would say, an open and shut. You know, there was a, a murder committed, mm. and there were there was one possible suspect and a gun with fingerprints. It certainly wasn't that simple. Um, but there was a lot of 
there was a lot of evidence showing the the flow of money mm. from these overseas bank accounts to vendors that did work for Paul Manafort that really wasn't contested. I think it was more a matter of where did that fit within the framework of the criminal law that we were dealing with. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating, really. And I think that the the judge, too, T.S. Ellis, um, he was someone who drew some scrutiny himself. Uh, you know, he had said, and you wrote about this, um, and this he was something he said on Friday on this as as the jury went into a break for the weekend that he had been he had received threats and he was he you know he was under protection of U.S. marshals and he wasn't going to release the names of the jurors citing security concerns. Um, at the same time, he he also attracted a bit of criticism. Uh, there were questions over whether or not the jury should be sequestered over the weekend. What overall did you make of uh, Judge Ellis and just the way in which he handled the proceedings? It's you know it's not unusual to encounter judges who are colorful. Mm-hmm. You know, judges bring their personalities to the bench. When you're a federal judge, you have essentially a lifetime job, so you're largely insulated from the kind of criticism that might. Um, give another public official pause before fully expressing themselves on the job, I should say. Mm-hmm. We should say. Um, I think what was unusual about Judge Ellis was the extent to which he was quite critical of the government's presentation, including in front of the jury. Mm. You know, it's you see judges and lawyers spar, they can yeah. get, you know, things can get heated, but they try to keep that away from the jury. Um, the jury really looks to the judge as the the most important person in the courtroom, and the judge is supposed to be very careful about not influencing the jury. Right. So to see the judge really come at uh, prosecutors in front of jurors, question why they were putting on certain evidence, telling them to hurry up, why are you doing this, it was pretty unusual. And I think that's what got folks' attention in looking at that dynamic and whether that was going to influence what the jury did in the end. Um, And again, according to Paula Duncan, it didn't seem to make a difference for most of them that the majority were ready to find him guilty on all counts, regardless of that criticism. Um, But I think it is is something that when you cover courts, it was unusual to see that play out as it did. Now, Paula Duncan, in her uh, comments to Fox News last night, said that... um, she herself was a, an avid supporter of uh, the president's, and she would drive to the courtroom with her Make America Great Again hat in the back seat, quote, to remind herself, end quote. And uh, she talked about how they're, have, they, they're trying to prove collusion and nothing that they, um, you know, nothing from this case, from this trial. I mean, this was not designed to 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 be on the collusion side of it or to prove the collusion between Trump campaign and Moscow. This, of course was Mueller's effort to try and squeeze associates of Trump on unrelated charges, you know, compel their uh, cooperation perhaps. But I guess the the question I was going to pose is, where does this go now? I mean, this juror, now she's entitled to, of course, now speak her mind publicly if she so chooses. Um, and, and she was talking about how this is all to, she, she, felt, she felt like she had to do the right thing and that Manafort was, was guilty and the evidence was overwhelming. But that this is all just to get to the president. And so what makes her uncomfortable is that ultimately this is about this the, try, about trying to get to the president. Um, so where does this actually go next? <laughs> where I mean, Paul Manafort is going to go back to trial. Right. And right. so what are the next? What's what do we what are we watching now as this as we move beyond uh, at least Tuesday's verdict? So there are a couple of milestones or touchstones or another word coming up 
um, by next week, the prosecution is going to have to announce if they want to retry Manafort mm. on the counts where the jury hung. So they have to decide if they want to go through all of this again another time. And in the meantime, Paul Manafort's second trial in D.C. is starting September 17th. So everyone is now getting ready for that. It's mostly the same lawyers. So, you know, they're going to have to decide how they want to handle things uh, if there is a second trial in Virginia. Manafort's lawyers in Virginia can now challenge that verdict if they want to. They can ask the judge to acquit him or for a new trial. They can appeal. Um, We should also note that he's also currently challenging his incarceration pending trial. So there are sort of multiple legal fronts right now. Um, And, you know, Manafort's lawyers haven't given any indication that they plan to drop their defense or give up now. He's fought this tooth and nail from the beginning. He, on you know, in both cases, challenged Mueller's authority. He tried to get the indictment tossed out by arguing that Mueller didn't have the authority to prosecute him. He sued the Justice Department separately to try and challenge this. So he's fought pretty hard, and we haven't heard anything from them that would suggest he's going to stop now. And maybe he gets a different result in D.C. Um, maybe he wins something on appeal. Who knows? Um, There's also a lot of speculation that this is now moving towards a pardon and that this was all for naught. We have no idea. (laughs) His lawyers haven't talked about that. Um, There's been no explicit discussion of that, I think, by the president. But the president has come out in support of Paul Manafort. Called him a good man. feel really badly for him, noted his long career in Republican politics. Um, Very sad what happened to, to Paul Manafort. Yeah. I think the tweet I like how was, he called him a Bob Dole staffer at yeah, one point. Right. You know, he said it, there was a tweet yesterday that was, I think, you know, unlike uh, Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort didn't break. Yeah. You know, so the president in his mind is making that <laughs> comparison right now between these this, two. He figures. continues to be so transparent about what the issue right. is for him. It's not about the. It's like not about the crimes that have been alleged. It's like he didn't protect me. And that's, he was supposed to protect me. Yeah. That's that's a plot line out of just about every mafia movie ever made, right? Like, don't snitch. Right. Don't break. Don't snitch. And he's been asked about pardon, and he basically has just declined to comment on it, Which, but then right. in this, in doing so, he's declined to rule it out. Now, well, members of Congress are starting to, I mean, that's a question being posed, what happens if there's a pardon? I know Ron Wyden, who um, is you know, a Democrat in the Senate, uh, he was out there, of course, issuing a sharp warning to the president. He's a Democrat, of course, but here's what he had to say. If the president were to pardon Michael Cohen or Paul Manafort, I think that would constitute a significant attack on the rule of law in America. Now, Michael Cohen has also been charged at the state level, and so the president can't pardon him for, I think it's only... The pardon power only extends to federal crimes. Um, if I, because I'm, I'm, now the question, of course, for Paul Manafort, I think, um, as you said, they haven't really talked about it. His lawyer did say um, they were appreciative of the president's support on Friday when the president did defend him as mm-hmm. the jury was in its second day of deliberations. But um, what would that look like, do you think, if if the president did pardon Manafort? I don't know. I mean, I would have wasted three weeks of, <laughs> of my life in Alexandria. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, I, At least you know, it was in Arlington. 
Yeah, I hope you don't live in Arlington. No. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I mean, it's. I think the timing of all of this is uh, will be really interesting. Whether if he were to do it, do you? Does it happen now before we have a whole other trial? Mm. Another trial that is would probably be even more focused on Manafort's work in Ukraine and his ties to the pro-Russia political party that he worked for there. Um, the trial in D.C. also involves a different co-defendant, Konstantin Kalimnik, mm. who was Manafort's partner in Ukraine. He's been reported to have ties to Russian intelligence. He's one of the few through lines that we have from this case and this prosecution to Russian intelligence. Mm-hmm. During the period of the campaign, there were court papers in another case that claimed Rick Gates and Kalimnik were in touch during the campaign period. That's a That's a... A connection that hasn't quite explicitly been made in the prosecution, but more of that could come out in a DC trial. Um, so I guess there's a question of do you, if there's going to be a pardon, would it happen now, trying to prevent this other trial from happening? Yeah. Or right before the midterms, <laughs> do you not want to do that? And instead, would you wait until whatever happens in the end? You know, if he needs to exhaust all of his appeals, does he want to try to fight it further? We don't know, but there are some. There are certainly other factors at play in a, a possible future decision to provide clemency for Paul Manafort. Now, can Paul can Paul Manafort still strike a deal to put to push for a lesser sentence? Uh, is that something he can still do at this juncture? Not. I I I don't think in Virginia that would right. be on the table at this point. Wait, um, for the upcoming for the upcoming, I suppose anything is possible. Um, as it gets closer to trial, it tends to get harder, and um, some courts are um, there's a bit more pushback when there's a last minute plea deal just because of the resources that have been expended leading up to trial. And I think they just want to, you know, make sure that it's it's on the up and up and what everyone wants. Um, I've just, I've seen that in cases where there's sort of a last minute plea deal, and sometimes courts will probe a bit deeper into that decision. Um, you know, if they've already impaneled a jury, things just get very complicated the closer you get to trial. Mm-hmm. So I think if he's going to do it, it would need to happen pretty soon. And we just haven't we haven't gotten any sense from his defense lawyers at all that that's really on the table. Yeah. That's never really been talked about. They've never said we're open to discussions or we're, we're talking with prosecutors. It just hasn't been a dynamic here. Mm-hmm. So what would be for you, I mean, having been there through these three weeks, what would be the sort of one lasting image that you walked away with? I think it was watching Manafort as the verdict was read. Mm. You know, this whole time he had just been so calm and composed. And I think a lot of people were really watching him and no one else when the verdict was announced to see how he would he react. Would there be any emotion? And there really wasn't. I was just struck by whether it was shock, whether it was stoicism. I couldn't distinguish that on his face, but it was really just a um, a flat line mm. watching him. It didn't. He didn't change at all, and I um, was really struck by that. And in this remarkable universe we live in, this was then the second story on everyone's radar. And then you came out, and no one cared. Michael Cohen. <laughs> uh, meanwhile. Uh, pleading guilty uh, to violating campaign finance law and um, implicating the president saying he did so in in coordination with and at the direction of a candidate for federal office. 
and later that individual in the uh, later that individual is named as someone who by that point had become the president of the United States, yes. leaving no doubt as to who Process it was. Process of elimination. Hmm. Who could that be? <laughs> who could it have been? So it's interesting. And sometimes in charging documents, the way that prosecutors will have to sort of bend backwards to not name people in charging documents. Right. Because, um, I mean, you don't want to, you can't do that. It's He's not a defendant in the case. You couldn't really put someone's name in there willy-nilly. Um, but, yeah, it does sort of reach absurd results Right. Sometimes. And if you weren't the president of the United States, he could have all been a co-defendant next to Michael Cohen. Uh, I mean, obviously, this is part, a lot of this has to do with the fact that since he is the president, we are learning about all of this wrongdoing. If anything, if the president had not been elected, we may not have known the extent of uh, some of the activities that were unfolding uh, among his associates and behind the scenes. Um, yes. But it's it's a fascinating time to 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 follow to follow all of this. Uh, and I know so 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 what so I said so it's in September. Yes, the second yes trial, and that's going to be in. Wash, wash. In the federal courthouse in D.C., in DC. where you can bring in phones, you can oh. bring in computers. <laughs> it's very exciting. So you get a live, real live tweet. <laughs> Maybe that's worse. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I'm, you know, overestimating the the positives of having uh, being connected during right. the trial. But we'll see. In a way, you were sort of at an, a retreat. It was an oasis of sorts, where you're just taking in accounting and numbers but uh, look we'll be following all of your great coverage and uh, thank you for uh, that really great rundown zoe tillman keep on following her work this see you next time on the bill, the press, bill show. press show you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator tour.